it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, January 20th, 2023. Happy Friday. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. So glad to have you here every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then available as a podcast every day when the show is over. That's on demand. It is free. Including, including, I should say, Bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the content available there, including that website, including that podcast. FoxNewsPodcast.com, an option, wherever you get your podcast. We, of course, recommend listening live as we air. Many ways to do that across our great affiliates all over the country, through our partners, at places like odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com, Fox News app, the live stream. The one-stop shop is GuyBensonShow.com. I'm political editor at townhall.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'll be on Media Buzz this weekend, Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern. I'm on the panel with Howie Kurtz, Fox News Channel. Set your DVRs or see you there. Here's our radio lineup today. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, he will be here on the program later on this hour. Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, looking forward to a conversation with him in our next hour. Also in that same hour, Andy McCarthy on some legal matters. We'll check in with Andy. And then Fridays with Cat, Cat Timpf in the house in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. Well, today is the two-year anniversary of President Joe Biden's inauguration. He has been president for two years. Kind of feels like 10 in some ways. And he gave some comments in California earlier talking about this whole documents scandal, the classified materials that have now been found in his private residence in multiple places, including his garage, that closet in an office that he used at this offshoot of Penn here in Washington, D.C., classified materials marked classified that should not have been in any of these places, including some that was top secret, marked as such, SCI as well, the highest, some of the highest levels of classification that we offer in our government. They are not supposed to be kept in an unsecure location under the rules, under the protocols, under the law. Now, we've covered this very carefully ever since the story broke, and it has been handled very badly by the White House. They withheld this information, the existence of this scandal, for months. It was uncovered, apparently, supposedly accidentally, before the midterm elections, and they did not disclose that. And despite having months of lead time, they still screwed it up in the rollout because they kept finding more and dribbling out more information and making a fool out of the people who were defending them as they kept having to change their talking points and sort of adjust their commentary. And the news media, I think, felt like 
idiots and hacks and chumps. And to some extent, I mean, some of them are when it comes to their water carrying for the Democrats. But I think they took the White House line as, okay, they've got this under control. These are the facts. And then the facts kept changing. I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing anger directed at Corrine Jean-Pierre, who has been, I mean, always bad at her job, but especially bad and floundering and struggling and flustered over these last two weeks. To the point that we even mentioned it yesterday, you've got reporters whispering off the record to CNN or on background to CNN about how bad she is, least effective in the history of the modern American presidency. I mean, pointless waste of time asking her questions. I mean, the the knives are out to some extent. The claws are out. But Biden, the president himself, talked about this controversy, and I just feel like this is really, really the wrong tone and the wrong substance. Cut one. We found a handful of documents were failed, uh, were filed in the wrong place. We immediately turned them over to the archives and the Justice Department. We're fully cooperating, looking forward to getting this resolved quickly. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. I'm following what the lawyers have told me they want me to do. It's exactly what we're doing. There's no there there. I do enjoy his little slip trying to say the word filed, but he said failed. That's fun. But then moving on from the normal, we turned them over, we found them, filed in the wrong place, cooperating fully, look forward to getting it resolved. Then comes this. You're going to find there's nothing there. I have no regrets. There's no there there. So let's unpack that just a little bit. There's already there, there. In fact, based on what we know so far, there's there, quote unquote, in the form of classified materials, there, 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 and over there, including his garage, accessed by God knows how many people, including Hunter and the babes he had in that Corvette in the photos that you've seen. You can't say there's no there there. We're way past that. I think you're going to find there's nothing there. There was something there the very first day this whole thing was discovered, November 2nd of last year, which we knew nothing about until last week. Classified materials illegally held in places where they are not allowed to be, where those documents are not allowed to be, is a there there. You can say that it was a mistake. You can say it was unintentional. We are sorry that this happened. It should not have happened. We take full responsibility. We are going to make sure that this doesn't happen again. This is different than what some other people have done. There are a number of different things you can say that might be more effective than, oh, there's no there there. You're going to find there's nothing. The there's have kept dripping out over the course of more than a week. From the closet to the ante room to the kitchen or wherever the other room was to the garage with the vet, which was locked, he tells us. And then, oh, the search is completed. Oh, wait, no, it's not. We found more. 
What have they been telling us? What is the, one of the only consistent things they've been saying to us on this for two weeks? The president takes classified materials very, very seriously. Over and over again. So serious. He's super serial, guys. And then when he actually goes a little bit off script, the president makes abundantly clear that he doesn't take this seriously. If he took it seriously, the protocols and the law would be followed. It was not followed on multiple occasions on his watch involving him. To sort of smirk at Peter Ducey and say, yeah, I was in the lock garage, not like I was sitting out on the street. That is not taking the issue seriously. On yesterday's Outnumbered, I was co-hosting for the noon hour on Fox News Channel. Kellyanne Conway made the point that sparked another thought in my mind. This guy, our president, has been at high levels of the federal government for like 50 years. For all of my lifetime and then some, like well over a decade plus beyond my whole lifetime, this man has been in Washington, D.C., on top committees in the Senate as a vice president of the United States for eight years and now as president. He's been vice president or president for a decade combined with all the Senate stuff before that. If anyone should know the rules on this type of thing through experience, right, that was part of his argument, his experience, it would be him. And they keep intoning with furrowed brows how seriously he takes things. And then he, like, flips everyone the bird by making it abundantly clear that he really doesn't. He takes himself far too seriously because he's sort of a farcical person in some ways. He takes his own political interests seriously. He does not take the handling of classified material seriously. Because one of the things you heard just there, I have no regrets. Like you can get a no regrets misspelled tattoo on his arm. Grandpa Joe. No regrets, gang. Listen, Bal. No regrets here. We just failed them in the wrong place. No regrets is exactly the wrong message. If you actually want to pretend that you take classified documents seriously, you would express regret over this. These documents should not have been there. I take responsibility because ultimately the buck stops with me. We are sorry that this happened. It shouldn't have. We hand them over immediately as soon as we found them. We have been cooperating. That's not an excuse. It will not happen again. And we are making sure it doesn't happen again. Sorry. We are. We apologize. We regret that this happened. That would be better, but that's not what we're getting, are we? We're getting no regrets from Grandpa Joe. And then just this insulting line. There's no there there. You're going to find out. Trust me. When the, We don't need any more details. We don't need more details. Top secret, written on the thing, sitting in an unsecured garage next to a Corvette with a bunch of people having access potentially to it. We don't need more information. That right there is illegal. You might say in the scheme of things, it's not as bad as it could have been or as bad as 
what Hillary did or as bad as what Trump did, whatever you want to say, you can't say with any credibility that there's nothing to this. There's already something to it. Classified materials at the highest level have been grossly mishandled on multiple occasions in multiple places by Joe Biden and the people around Joe Biden. And if you want to move past this, first of all, they probably could have gotten all the documents found sooner than this rolling mess. And you don't do this defiant, like, yeah, my garage was locked, no regrets, nothing there, no there, there, good night, everybody. That's not what you do. And you don't send out the constantly panic-blinking Karine Jean-Pierre to say just nothing over and over again in different ways to the point of pissing off even a room full of people, 95% of whom eagerly voted for this president, her boss. Here's a little montage just to give you a taste of what she's been up to. Cut to. I already answered your question. Go ahead. You really did. Well, I, I did. Well, it's your it's your opinion. I'm having a hard time understanding why. I just said questions about procedure. And I just said and I just said to you, the White House Counsel's Office will be able to address that question. We're having a conversation about adding a member to the staff to speak publicly. Peter, I just I actually just answered that question. I said we have someone currently. So that means no. why is it a DOJ and, and, it's, and let's be clear, it's not your decision to make on what I can or can't answer from here. I love that first part. KJP, I already answered your question, reporter. You really didn't. KJP, well, I did. Response, no, you didn't. A little testy. And by the way, last point, we played this clip before, a little flashback, just a few months ago. The Trump, Mar-a-Lago, the documents, the horror That classified documents were down there. And again, I'm not defending Trump on that. And I didn't at the time. But Joe Biden in high dudgeon, the president, how could such a thing happen? This is cut 18 CBS News. When you saw the photograph of the top secret documents laid out on the floor at Mar-a-Lago, what did you think to yourself looking at that image? How that could possibly happen. How one, anyone could be that irresponsible. And I thought, what data was in there that may compromise sources and methods? By that, I mean names of people who helped, or et cetera. And it's just uh, totally irresponsible. Set some uh, soft dance music in the background, I guess, of that version of the clip. Totally irresponsible. How could this happen? Sources and methods. What data was in that that could compromise the country? That was Joe Biden's concern because, remember, he takes classified materials very, very seriously. Then he's got a bunch of classified materials floating around in boxes and folders in closets and garages. This comes out. And his response is, I have no regrets. There's nothing here. There's no there there. Speaks for itself. Reflects very poorly on him. I think some of it is arrogance on his part. I also think, I'm sorry to say, I don't think our president is a terribly bright man. And I think he often hurts himself when he opens his mouth. I think if they want to get this guy reelected, they're going to have to find a way for him to speak almost never. It's not a great combination. But that's who we've got running the executive branch of the government of the United States of America.
I think maybe some voters might have some regrets. Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Friday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. See the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is out with a book. We'll have him here next week. He said that he thought Nikki Haley was trying to position herself to run as the VP nominee for the reelect in 2020. She's come out and saying that's absolutely not true. Lies and gossip. So, look, the shadow potential campaign for 2024 is very much underway. Nikki Haley last night on special report with Brett Bayer, he asked the question, cut 22. Are you going to run for president? Well, I'm not going to make an announcement here, but when you're looking at a run for president, you look at two things. You first look at, does the current situation push for new leadership? The second question is, am I that person that could be that new leader? Yes, we need to go in a new direction. And can I be that leader? Yes, I think I can be that leader. I was as governor. I took on a hurting state with double-digit unemployment, and we made it the beast of the Southeast. As ambassador, um, you know, I took on the world when they tried to disrespect us, and I think I showed what I'm capable of at the United Nations. So do I think I could be that leader? Yes, but we are still working through things, and we'll figure it out. I've never lost a race. I said that then. I still say that now. I'm not going to lose now, but stay tuned. I mean, that sounds an awful lot like yes. I'm running, but I can't say it yet because I want to plan a big announcement and we have to time things right. And there's various technicalities preventing me from announcing it yet. That's what that sounds like to me. She's running, but not technically running just yet. Now, she talks about her record. Fair enough. I like the governor, the ambassador. We've had her on here many times. There is just this issue that she did say unequivocally on the record that if former President Donald Trump ran for president, she would not run for president against him in a primary. Well, he's the only person who's announced in either party so far. So she would have to kind of figure out a way to explain that reversal. Perhaps she will have that explanation at some point soon. But it sounds like she's running, just to me. I have no special knowledge there, but I mean, listen to that answer. We'll take a break. Come right back on The Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. So I saw this last week on MSNBC. Congressman Byron Donalds of Florida went on with Joy Reid, which is an interesting choice. And among other things, they got into it on Social Security. 
I'm all for a good policy debate. Here's how that went down, If in case you missed it. I'd imagine probably a lot of you missed it, starting with cut 13. Do you know that Social Security is going to be insolvent in 2035? It is not going to be. That yes, is not true. Will. That, that is, is actually not true. No, it's say. actually not now, Joy, true. It's actually I'm a not true. Professional. It's actually not true. But it's actually not true. The financial community. I That's actually not true. Social That's actually not true. Will go insolvent. That's actually not true. Those are the facts. That's not true. Should we not prepare that is not for true. that? What the Republican Party and what the Tea Party have proposed is privatizing Social Security, which would actually subject Social Security to the whims of the market, which I don't think that people. That's not what they paid into. No. If you look at the returns of the S&P. 500 that's not true. That is since not true. 2006, not true. the returns of the S&P 500 since 2006. You're that saying so you, you, okay, oh, so you support privatizing I, I, Social Security. Okay, that's a very frustrating soundbite to listen to because Joy Reid's argument, and this is really basically all that she can do, is to repeat like a zombie over and over again. That's not true. That's actually not true. That's not true. That's actually not true. Just talking over him. He is, in this soundbite, in this exchange, repeating factual information as determined by the bookkeepers of the federal government about the solvency of Social Security. Now, she pivots toward the end to try to corner him on privatization or whatever she wants to call it because she doesn't like a potential conservative solution to the problem, but she had just spent – the previous 30 seconds of that soundbite denying that the problem is even true, even though it is the actual math. So you can just repeat over and over again, that's not true, it's not true, it's not true, just signaling to the MSNBC audience, this man is lying, even though he was telling the truth. And then she tries to, like, you know, slither over to a brand new debate, which he was happy to have. The exchange continued and cut 14. I want to explain to you. I am a financial professional. I'm securities license. Actually, I just lost my licenses because I'm not allowed to trade anymore because I'm a member of Congress. Mm -hmm. But let me assure you, if you look at the S&P 500 from 2006 until today, the growth rate in the S&P 500 would have more than taken care of Social Security, way more than the federal government And each time that you had a crash, it would subject people's Social Security funds to a crash. Hold on a second. So let me just, hold on a second. We're not going to have a whole long thing on Social Security. But let me just be clear. You You are in favor of privatizing Social Security. No, I'm not in favor but you of just argued for it. it. I okay. said you, you, you just brought it up and it. I brought you the facts. But so you are S&P 500. So if a bill came occurred. forward to privatize Social Security, you'd be for it? No, because what we should be doing. Okay. Then on. it's a moot what point. We should, then it's a moot it's point. It's not a moot point. Then it's You're a moot trying point. to put words in my mouth. I'm but you just explained that the S&P would be a better return than Social Security. So then you're for privatizing That is a fact. Don't cheapen privatization when the data is crystal clear that the returns would have been better. Okay, you're for it. You've said that you're for it. That means that it would have been a better situation than what we've seen All right. Joining us now is Byron Donalds, that congressman, the Republican that you heard there. Congressman, good to have you back. Hey, how you doing? It's good to be back with you. So, I mean, let's talk just briefly about that exchange. I wanted to play the soundbite. We've been meaning to get to it for a couple days here, but she went from just talking over you constantly saying that the insolvency date, which is not it's not you coming up with that out of nowhere, just grabbing a date out of thin air and saying it. That's the government's own numbers. She just said, not true, not true, not true, not true, not true. And then she tried to pin you down on this terrible potential solution that you were just running the math for her on it. And I guess she felt like she was able to score a little like political attack on you. It seems like at no point did she actually try to engage on any of the substance or facts that you were bringing to that conversation. No, she didn't want to deal with that. I think Joy was trying to paint the picture 
of to be to, to be frank, she tried to paint the picture of a black Republican who's just going to say whatever Republicans are are typically say when they go on MSNBC. What she actually got was somebody who knew what they were talking about. And this isn't about white or black or Republican or Democrat. It's about the facts of what's going on in the United States. So with Social Security, for your listeners, uh, the Congressional Budget Office and the Office of Management and Budget both fully expect Social Security to be insolvent by 2035. Some reports are actually thinking insolvency is going to come by 2033. But here's the kicker. Here's why this matters. In federal law, if Social Security, not even if, when Social Security goes insolvent, there is going to be an automatic, uh, an automatic reduction in benefits to the tune of 21 to 23 percent automatically when the programs go insolvent. What does that mean? That means for the retirees who would who get Social Security payments, uh, their benefits will be cut 20 percent the second the programs go insolvent. So why would we want to sit and just sit around and and play with our thumbs when we can get ahead of it and actually fix Social Security and maintain Social Security so that retirees get the benefits they were promised and that the long-term debt obligations of the United States are actually decreased by actually doing necessary reforms. That's my view. That's what we should be doing. Yeah, and look, there are different ways to come at it, tweaking the retirement age. There's a number of different policies that are potentially out there. I think that in many cases, neither party is really that serious about dealing with the long-term liability issues that we have on these huge entitlement programs. The Democrats are dead set on any changes ever, and they demagogue it, and they will demagogue it to death until the programs actually are on the doorstep of insolvency, and then what? I mean, that's sort of what pre-planning requires, and I think what we just played for the audience is an encapsulation of how pointless and dysfunctional the debate can get because you were citing a factual piece of information from CBO that she said was just a lie. She wanted people to think you were lying, and then then she just pivoted quickly to attacking one of the potential solutions and doing so ignorantly. And it's just like a very frustrating thing. It's very hard to solve complicated problems when you have a lot of people dedicated to – actively lying about the problem while accusing the people telling the truth of lying. And that's what we just heard there. Congressman, I also want to ask you, because you've been sort of at the center of a lot of attention recently, of course, during the speaker battle, 15 rounds. Your name was introduced in multiple rounds. You got a number of votes for Speaker of the House, of course. Over the process that played out that we all watched, there was a member of the House from the other party, Corey Bush, a member of the squad, who tweeted basically that you don't really count um, as as a black person or as a black candidate for speaker for her own ideological, I think, really twisted, really backwards identity politics, like rubric, whatever they use. Uh, I know you had a bit of a back and forth with her. I'm sure you've gotten that for a lot of your life and your career because you're not supposed to be a conservative according to these people, which I think is bigotry, when you saw that coming in from Congresswoman Bush and people defending her, how does that affect you personally, and how do you push back against that in a way that you feel like you can keep your dignity intact while also calling out something really gross that they're saying? Well, personally, I, I really don't care. Um, you know, it's actually not something that you deal, you've, I've dealt with a lot. 
a long time, I should say. But, you know, the second I got into politics and started, like, you know, winning elections and being successful, that's when that stuff starts to come because, you know, black conservatives were narrative busters. You know, what I've found is that, you know, frankly, it's white liberals and black and black progressives. They're the ones that hate black conservatives more than anybody else because we directly cut across the narrative that they try to portray. And so, you know, being once I got into the state legislature and now being a member of Congress, those hits only come. But I knew that was going to happen. So that's why it doesn't really bother me uh, per se. Uh, because most of these people who will say this stuff, you know, in, in interviews when I'm not on set, you can even tell Joy Reid, she tempered her her enthusiasm when I'm sitting right there. Or people who will tweet it, they won't say that stuff directly to my face. Like, they're, mm-hmm. like and nobody's going to walk up to me on the House floor and say that directly in my face. So that's why I don't really care about the attacks. I think the thing that bothers me more is the impact it has on young black people or young, you know, to quote the left, people of color who are starting to think about pu- public policy and politics and realize they're actually more conservative. Well, that's the point, does, right? The, the point is to kind of, them. yeah, they, yeah. they want to punish and embarrass you, and they want to send a signal to other people like, hey, if you start thinking like that dangerous way, then just so you know, we're going to make sure the world thinks that you're not really one of us, really appealing to this like base tribal racial thing I think that's the whole point, mistreating people who get to positions of prominence to warn off others who might be having errant, impure ideological thoughts. Yeah, but and that's the part where I'm, for me, I don't personally, I don't care. I, I actually think about like my sons, how do they think about this? How do they see this? And what does this mean for other young kids out there when they see this stuff? Are they going to have the courage to stand and fight? And so that's and to stand and fight. And that's why I don't really pay too much attention to it. I bring it up every now and again, uh, but I'm not going to change my thought process because of what she might think that she puts on Twitter or what Joy Reid might say when I'm not on set. You know, you can do that stuff all you want until you bring it to my face. That's when it becomes a personal issue with me. But one of the reasons why I think you got to be able to stand that ground is because even go back to the debate I had with Joy about privatization. I think if you talk to people in the Bush administration at the time, um, back in 2006, if you ask them today, they wish they would have gone ahead and just ignored the media and done what needed to be done. Because the returns of the S&P 500 since that point in time are about 9.2 to 9.5 year over year since 2006. That takes into account the 08 recession. It takes into account the downturns in the market that have occurred over time. And the result would have been far better than what Social Security will produce. Those are the facts. Mm -hmm. If you state that, people like Corey Bush will say, oh, well, you're just a prop. But that's not true at all because my intelligence and what I've done in my career has been through hard work. Nobody's given me anything. You know, I've had to work hard to get where I am. So that's why I ignore what she says. And for the young people, well, and, and you also just about conservatism, they should ignore that stuff and just continue on with what they're doing. On your point on Social Security, coming back to that, I mean, you made an actual factual argument based on math. And Joy Reid's response seemed to be like this gleeful, oh, I got him to maybe kind of admit to this word that can be used against him, and we can put that in an attack ad to try to win an election as opposed to engaging with any of the facts after she had straight up denied an unambiguous fact about the nature of the problem itself. It's just a constant moving target. I don't find her to be a terribly uh, intelligent or intellectually honest person i i think you know it's brave to go on a show like that because you're going to be fighting like shadow boxing against jello it's there's no actual 
substance there. She'll just – the whole point is to try to make you look bad. I think you watch the whole exchange. You come across very well. Is it true, Congressman, that someone sent you a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin? What's what's that about? Yeah, it showed up in my congressional office the other day. And, you know, my staff, they you know, they weren't happy about it, obviously. And most people need to understand, like, my staff is both – um, I got black staffers, I got white staffers. They they work hard and they do their jobs. Um, and the, they were frankly they were more upset about it than I was. Like I said, I'm kind of accustomed to it, um, so it doesn't really bother me. But they were really mm. upset. So, you know, I was like, you know what, you guys are just upset about it. If you feel we should talk about it, let's talk about it. So yeah, that did happen. Yeah, just really gross. And I know that whoever sent that to you probably thinks that they're doing a bunch of anti-racism while just doing racism, which is far too often the case. Congressman, we've got this uh, debt ceiling fight looming here, a couple months to maybe figure something out. Uh, you were obviously part of the team that wasn't immediately on board with Speaker, uh, Speaker McCarthy, took a while, finally came around, got some concessions. As you start looking ahead to that debt ceiling issue, what are you hoping to see? What do you think is realistic in terms of getting this resolved? Um, we're going to have to have some spending. We're going to have to have a spending reductions. The reason we're hitting debt ceiling this fast is because of the reckless, the reckless spending of Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and Chuck Schumer. That's why. And so if they think that we're just going to raise the debt ceiling to pay for the reckless spending that they continued with, they got another thing coming. Um, I know that the White House is now saying there's not going to be any negotiations. We just need to pay the bills. Uh, but these are the bills racked up by Joe Biden. I voted against all that stuff the last two years. So I'm not just going to stand here and give him credit card space so he could pay for the things that he thinks are cool. That stuff is in, insane policy. We shouldn't be doing it. Um, and so there are going to be negotiations around this thing. Do I think we're going to have a debt ceiling deal? Yeah, I think we're going to have one. But the American people need to understand that last year the federal government took in about $4 trillion in revenue, $4 trillion. If we are overspending to the point where we have to raise the debt ceiling, that's a spending problem. That's not a not wanting to pay your bills problem. That means that you're too busy you know, buying things that you should not be buying, even though you got a bunch of money to pay for the stuff if you're just prudent and fiscally responsible. So we're going to want to see spending cuts. And for me personally, what I want to see is Joe Biden's got to secure the border because it makes no sense to borrow money to pay for the Department of Homeland Security if the Department of Homeland Security is not going to secure the homeland. I mean, that's just purely idiotic. So for me personally, he's got to secure the border if he wants to be able to increase the debt ceiling in order to borrow more money to, quote, unquote, pay the bills. Because I'm not interested in paying the bills for having a wide open border. Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida, our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. Congressman, have a great weekend. Hope to talk to you again soon. All right. Anytime. Let's step aside. Let's take a quick break here. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay with us. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Still to come on today's program, Will Kane. In the next hour, he'll kick things off. Talk sports, politics, and perhaps the intersection thereof. Andy McCarthy coming up later on in that same hour. Then Kat Timp. 
She will be rolling into our New York headquarters and our studio up there. Fridays with Cat, just after 5 p.m. Eastern time. Speaking of Cat, I see her right now on the store with, uh, with Martha McCallum and Tyrus. That's fun. But she'll be here on the radio a little over an hour from right now. Incidentally, I did want to just quickly shout out my friend Megan McCain. She and her husband, Ben Dominich, Ben is a contributor here, just welcomed their second daughter into the world. She had been, like, super pregnant for a while. I think this baby might have been a tiny bit late. We were all eager, and now the baby has arrived. And it's I saw the name. The name was, like, pretty unique. Middle name might have been Jade. I had seen it. And I think their first daughter's name, Liberty, so... They're taking some liberties with their kids' names, and it's cool. Like, off the beaten path, that's fun. So they are now parents of two girls. Congratulations to Megan and to Ben. Very quickly, I saw this story in the New York Times earlier yesterday. Jennifer Griffin was here talking about Ukraine and how there was a big meeting happening in Germany to try to work out some deal under which Western powers would help arm the Ukrainians further, specifically with tanks. And the headline today from The Times is that Western defense officials meeting in Germany failed today to produce an agreement for exporting battle tanks to Ukraine, a weapon now seen as crucial to the country's defense against a new Russian offensive. That's the the summary of the New York Times story about that important meeting that Jennifer previewed for us yesterday. So just an update on that front. I hope they get that hammered out. All right, we'll take a break. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, joins us live straight ahead. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Friday Vibes on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day on demand, including Bonus Benson on the weekends. I'll be on Media Buzz Sunday morning, 11 a.m. Eastern Time with Howie Kurtz, Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. Fox News alert as we kick off our middle hour. The Dow up today, 329 points off the schneid. Got pummeled the last couple days, but back in the green today. Finishing the week at 33,374. Still to come later this hour, Andy McCarthy is here. Next hour, Kat Timp will join us. But now we welcome back to the show Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend. Also host of the popular Will Kane podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. And Will, it's always a treat to chat with you. Welcome back. Thank you, Guy. What's up? Well, I'm almost completely talked out on this NHL Flyers pride jersey controversy. I've said almost everything that I want to say about it. I did notice today that this guy, the one dissenter, his jersey is now sold out online, and people are saying this is proof of widespread homophobia. I think it might be proof of something else. And do you have any big top-line takeaways on this whole flap? Well, first... I'm interested in your thoughts, even though you are talked out. I would love to have this as an open conversation. Um, 
between you and I. So let's start with the jersey, if, if you wouldn't mind. So the fact that the jersey is sold out, um, to me, is absolutely no proof. And it's the almost 180-degree wrong, opposite direction, wrong take to land on that the United States of America is overwhelmingly homophobic, and that's why they're buying Provorov jerseys. I think it is um, that they're just tired of having wokeness or intolerance, quite honestly, intolerance shoved down their throat. Um, you know, I just don't think a country – you and I you, – you and I have known each other for a while, and you know, I, I just we – we were together on TV like in – what was it, guy, like 2010, 11, 12 range? Yeah. When the country yep. was moving very, very quickly towards what I think was probably going to be anyway – at least in a lot of states, a democratic acceptance of gay marriage, right? Meaning win a popular vote. I think that was probably going to happen given if the Supreme Court hadn't stepped in, the country was probably moving in that direction. I think the country was moving towards tolerance and equality. And I just think that this situation with Provorov shows not that America has regressed to homophobia, but that the standard for enlightenment is no longer tolerance and equality, but probably through the prism of equity, like we do with race, some sort of required celebration. Yep. And I think the country's rejecting that and buying his jersey. Yep. yep, I think that's it. It's just like a middle finger to the thought enforcers that people don't want to be a part of. And my main point that I've made now multiple times is if it's required, it means nothing. If you're going to wear a little something – to celebrate something else because you are mandated to do so, the people that are the targets of that pandering should view it as completely empty and inauthentic because that's what it is. That's what mandatory celebration actually entails. And I'm glad that his coach stood up for him. I'm glad that the NHL, somewhat surprised, honestly, that they stood up for him too. I think we can probably start to move on from the story the reason that we haven't quite moved on from it yet, Will, is because like, the thermonuclear takes in the sports media on this have been off the charts. And this is something that you, I think, have unique insight into, having spent some time at ESPN on the air for years. I've always had a theory, having done sports broadcasting when I was younger, I think there are a lot of people in sports journalism, sports broadcasting, who have politics envy. When they have an opportunity to insert their left-wing politics into their sports coverage, they clamor for it, and like it fills some sort of gaping hole in their journalistic soul. They can't wait to do it, and so it's like a giant performative production of who can be the angriest about this because it's like a little excuse for them to do kind of, I think, what they want to be doing ultimately, which is what we do. That's just one of my pet theories. Well, okay. I think your pet theory holds some water. I, mean, I think there's like an old, old cliche or stereotype of like in the newspaper um, room, in the newsroom of the, new, the old school newspaper, that the sports writers are the guys that didn't make it as the politics writers or the, the news writers. And they always kind of felt like the cast offs or the, you know, the dunce wing of the newspaper. I don't think that's true. I love sports. No, uh, yeah, I don't agree with that. Yeah. But I, think, but I think that's an, a stereotype that once, that once existed, and I think it's true living up to that stereotype that many sports um, writers want to be doing politics. I mean look at them. That's what they do when given an opportunity. You know, Guy, I had the, I had the only show on ESPN radio that showed ratings growth quarter over quarter and, and um, 
um, was was a winning radio show in essence. I can't say I had the highest ratings because different different hours have different clearances. You know how that works in radio. Yep. So the morning show has has the highest clearances, but whatever. And the reason that my show did so well was because I talked sports. And then everybody else who held that time slot before me saw it as their opportunity to talk politics. And it's not just the audience doesn't want to hear your lefty politics. They don't want to hear politics. There are other channels for that. You know, yeah, That's they why they're on sports radio. Sports. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, so, by the way, okay, and maybe this is inevitable. You're talking about those thermonuclear um, takes within sports. You saw the – there's an ESPN guy, and then there's a um, – NHL network guy that basically said Provorov should love it or leave it, the pride jersey. Yeah, get out of the country, go back yeah. to Russia and get involved. Go back in the to where war. you came from, you immigrant. It was like, oh, yes. <laughs> so what's How progressive is this evolution from tolerance to celebration to compliance back around again to intolerance? I just can't think of anyone And I mean, punishment. A, what better example right. of intolerance can you come up with than that guy? He is what he professes to hate. That's right. Now, it's interesting. You said some of these guys talking sports desperately want to talk politics, and they do at every opportunity. There are other shows for politics like this one, Will. So let's talk sports. Uh, We've got football coming up this weekend. (laughs) Uh, Four big games, including both of our teams playing. You are much more invested in your team, the Dallas Cowboys, than I am in my New York Giants. It's sort of my third tier team in terms of stuff that I care about. I'm big into college. College for you, I, for you, college yep. football, then baseball, right? I think you're baseball. Yeah, I'd say right? y- Yankees baseball. So I'd say Northwestern football, basketball, Yankees baseball, Devils hockey, and then like a distant level down is New York Giants. I'm happy that they're in the playoffs, hmm. turning things around, good new coach, uh, you know, night and day from the last couple seasons. They've got the Eagles in Philly uh, tomorrow night. I am curious, as a Cowboys fan, who are you rooting for in this game? And and if you're rooting for the Giants, let's say, is it because you think they would be easier for the Cowboys to beat, or do you do rooting based on your hatred of one of these division rivals that exceeds your hatred for the other one? Like, how do you make those calls? The only real reason I would root is what I perceive to be the better outcome for the Cowboys. Okay. Like, I'll tell you, I hate the Eagles more than the Giants. Some people just Fair. inspire hatred. Who does some, some teams, That's some right. fan bases inspire hatred. Oh, more they're than criminals, others. yes. <laughs> but, uh, and I, I think it's mutual. I think that the Eagles fans hate the Cowboys. Actually, you know what would be interesting? Who do Eagles fans hate the most? I think Cowboys would be number one. I would um, argue themselves. I would argue themselves, but that's a separate <laughs> issue. Um, but I will be rooting for the Giants, not because I hate them less than the Eagles, but because now it comes the insult to the Giants. Um, yeah, they'd be easier to beat. The Cowboys, they're easier to beat. Yeah, I, think they, I feel more yeah. confident the Cowboys being the Giants than I do the Eagles. All right, fair enough. And then you got a Jags and the Chiefs. Jags had a little bit of a miraculous comeback. That felt, that felt very dangerous what we just did because I have to I need to beat the 49ers. Cowboys need to beat the 49ers. Oh, we're getting I'm there. Extremely nervous about that. Yeah, no, I just I just had you looking ahead, which is a, a dangerous thing in sports. <laughs> I just baited you into right. that, Will. Uh Jags Chiefs, right. I think the Chiefs win it. I think maybe the sort of the magic may have run out. They've they've spent all the magic for the Jaguars. Sort of an exciting season for them. That game's in Kansas City. Uh, are you are you going with the Chiefs, I assume? I like it, and I like your analysis. Yeah, I think Bengals. I think Pat, Patrick Mahomes is the closest we have to Superman in, in football. 
Bengals Bills. I mean, what a story! What a storyline! Everything that the Bills have been through. The game in Cincinnati. Now this one's going to be in Buffalo. I, the Bills didn't look that hot last week. They, they won, but not that not that impressively. The Bengals. I know they've got worried. They're worried a bit about injuries and stuff. What do you make of this game? I, I'm really excited for this one. Me too. I would take the Bengals. I think it's an interesting upset, but I think that you brought up the injuries. The offensive line for the Bengals is in bad shape, like really bad shape. And that was their Achilles heel, um, you know, before getting to the Super Bowl. But they couldn't – even there during that year, Burrow was sacked a ton, and somehow they kept winning because Burrow's really good. But with an offensive line in that bad of shape, I have to take the Bills. Very quickly, Sunday evening, you got the last game again in this round of the playoffs. Cowboys at San Francisco, 49ers playing really well. I know who you're rooting for. Who are you picking? Well, I'm not going to yeah, – don't, don't say that. Like, who am I picking? I'm not, I'm not going to make a pick against the Cowboys. <laughs> I, I, you're like, yeah, I got, I got to... the Niners in this game, guy. Uh, go Cowboys, <laughs> but, but there's I'm no super, chance. I'm, I'm super nervous. I'm, I'm super nervous. They're, the Niners are really good. They're really well coached. They're going to be going running the ball in every direction. It's going to be a problem for the Cowboys. They stop the run, and they run really well. So Dak right. Prescott better be perfect. Go Giants. Go 49ers. Sorry, Will. Always appreciate your time here. Will Kane on the Guy Benson Show. We'll be watching Fox and Friends weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We'll be right back. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you here. Took me a little bit of extra time getting into the studio today here in D.C. because of the March for Life. A lot of traffic. This is the pro-life march that has happened every year for five decades. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, 72 at the Supreme Court, establishing a so-called right to abortion in the Constitution that wasn't actually there. Roe has been criticized even by a number of liberal scholars through the years, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late justice, for its legal flimsiness. And for the first time, the anniversary this weekend of Roe versus Wade, which is why the March for Life happens around this time every year, that's the occasion. For the first time, this is almost like a mission accomplished March for Life because the protest isn't just against abortion. It is heavily against that Roe versus Wade decision, which was overturned last year, six to three in the Dobbs case. And that new ruling, that new precedent, which takes the issue, a very difficult, thorny, complicated issue, and hands it back to the people and their representatives in the states. That's what the Dobbs decision did. It was a huge part of our politics last year. We talked about it a lot here. I think Roe needed to go on the merits. And I think now it's a difficult but important discussion about hearts and minds and where we land as a society through our elected representatives. So I think that there was probably a fair amount. I was traveling, so I wasn't able to attend the march, but a fair amount of celebration this year, given what the pro-life movement, through an enormous amount of work, was able to accomplish. And in some ways, this battle over hearts and minds and this issue has only begun, but a very important threshold has now been crossed. 
Now, because this is the anniversary with the march coming up, there was a poll commissioned by the Knights of Columbus carried out by Marist, that pollster, which is a very well-known mainstream pollster. I believe NBC uses them as well, asking a bunch of questions about abortion and public opinion. And as I have been saying for years, but especially in the context of Dobbs, public opinion on abortion is complicated. You can cherry pick specific things to make it seem like the American people are heavily on your side, quote unquote, depending on how certain questions are asked or what you want to focus on. But the upshot is a lot of ambiguity. And in some ways, like conflicting, contradictory data. But in this poll, by about 60-40 percentage-wise, Americans call themselves pro-choice versus pro-life, 60-40. I'd put myself in the pro-life category. However, you dig in a little bit further, about 70 percent of Americans favor substantial restrictions and limitations on abortion. Seventy percent say that it should be only legal in the first trimester or with a few exceptions or not at all. So first trimester or more conservative, more restrictive, that's 70 percent of the country with almost no gender gap. Only 21 percent, one out of five Americans, agree with the Democrats' effective position, sadly, at the federal level here in Washington, which is limitless abortion on demand for any reason, all the way through birth, potentially slightly beyond, paid for by tax dollars. That is a 20 percent position in this country. And interestingly, women are slightly less likely than men to embrace that radical position. So... You ask about public funding of abortion, taxpayer funding of abortion. That is heavily opposed. Using U.S. taxpayer dollars for abortions abroad, which is a Democratic policy, that's like almost 80 percent are against that. Three-quarters of the country think that medical professionals should not be forced to participate in abortions that they object to. I mean, there's a, a tapestry of opinion that isn't just cut and dried and clean for either side. I think Republicans need to think about how they communicate on this issue, where they land, what they prioritize, how they message, and what their actual policies are. And then the Democrats should be forced to reckon with how extreme they have become. As I mentioned just a few weeks ago, almost every single Democrat in the House except for one voted against an infanticide ban, forcing doctors and medical professionals to give medical care to babies born alive, even if it happens accidentally during a failed late-term abortion, which you would think is just, you know, an anti-murder law. They wanted to codify and clarify that every House Democrat, except for uh, two, actually, voted no on that. And then they all, except for three of them in the House Democratic Caucus, voted against a resolution condemning terrorism and violent threats and crime against pro-life centers and organizations. FBI just came out in the last few days and said that since the Dobbs decision, 70% of that type of violence and threat environment is targeting pro-lifers, left-wing extremists. And 
I guess the Democrats decided that they were not going to bring themselves to condemn that. FBI, incidentally, still hasn't solved a lot of those fire bombings. They are offering a $25,000 reward now for any assistance to that end. So just a few things on a tough issue on an interesting day. The March for Life post-Dobbs. Where do we go from here? It's a murky path, an important conversation, one that we try to have carefully, respectfully on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Halfway through the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day when the show is over, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. Joining us now, Andy McCarthy, Fox News contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, author of multiple best-selling books. Andy, good to have you back. Guy, great to be with you. Do you have rooting interests in the NFL playoffs, Andy? Because if I recall correctly, you're a Jets fan, so you probably have to figure out who you're rooting for other than the Jets every year around the playoffs. Yeah, that has been a um, that has been mostly a, a half century uh, misery. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I I'm pulling for the Giants. Um, oh, all right, nice. I, yeah, I'm not one of those Jet fans who hates the Giants, and a lot of people in my family are you know fanatics for the Giants. So I always uh, I always root for them. I kind of think Buffalo and and Dallas are are, are the two best teams, but uh, we'll see how it comes out. All right. And a couple things to get to here. Let's start with the documents searches and the Biden classified materials matter, which continues to unfold. You've got a piece out calling this DOJ grossly negligent in their handling of the whole situation. Uh, that is a technical term, a legal term, right? Grossly negligent. What do you mean by that in this context? Well, gross negligence is a, a term of art here, uh, Guy, because the main violation that uh, President Biden is now the subject of a criminal investigation over is the mishandling of classified information, mainly under the Espionage Act, where for this violation, the the required mens rea or state of mind proof is, did he act with gross negligence? That is, did he handle uh, classified information as somebody who was entrusted with it uh, in a manner that um, caused it to be, for example, kept in unauthorized places, exposed to unauthorized people, uh, and the like. So the statute is talking about gross negligence, and the reason I apply it to the Justice Department is both the irony that that is the statute that's under investigation, uh, and I say irony because their own behavior here is – a situation where they knew that there were there was likely to be more classified information in various Biden personal locations, namely his uh, his residences, mm-hmm. and they had an opportunity to have the FBI uh, conduct those searches or at least participate in them, and they opted not to under circumstances where they knew what this meant was that Biden aides who did not have security clearances would do the searches which basically is grossly negligently causing unauthorized people to get exposure to secret information, exactly what's not supposed to happen. But Biden just said there's no there there. So I guess 
matter closed, right, Andy? The president says there's nothing to see here. Well, if he says so. Um, you know, gee, I don't know. It seems to me like it, I don't see how there could be no there there uh, if even they can see that there are classified documents. I think what they're probably banking on, Guy, is that, you know, throughout the Hillary Clinton email scandal, they tried to con the country into believing what the criminal law said is that you have to prove that somebody is trying to sell the country out to our enemies in order to be guilty. The problem they have here, number one, is that's not what the statute says. And number two, uh, for the last uh, close to a year, they've been quite clear that that's not what the statute says because it helped them to make their case against Donald Trump, uh, who is being investigated for the same offense that uh, Biden's being investigated for. We opened the show yesterday on the program, Andy, with the breaking news from the Supreme Court, an update on that investigation into the really shocking leak of the draft opinion of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. And the court put out a fairly short statement explaining that there's been an investigation. There were a bunch of potential suspects. They eliminated a lot of them, uh, which I guess suggests maybe they didn't eliminate some of them but could not conclusively prove beyond like the preponderance standard of evidence that someone was responsible for this. So uh, I guess the search goes on. I think as the trail gets colder, maybe it'll get harder to prove whoever did this. I just wonder what you make of the Supreme Court, the statement that they put out, where this thing goes from here, and just the damage that was done by whomever was responsible. Well, the damage is profound, uh, and where it, where it goes from here, I think, is to failure. Um, but I, I can't say I'm at all surprised, Guy, because I think we talked about this um, you know, back when, when the, the Dobbs leak first was discovered. Um, my position then, and I, I continue to believe, is that the only way this could have been solved was if it was handled as a criminal investigation by the Justice Department with the FBI aggressively investigating. Uh, I'm not trying to demean the effort that the marshal for the court made, uh, but the judiciary as an institution and its police force, which is really more of a security force than an investigative force, uh, force is, um, is not institutionally competent to do a criminal investigation or an investigation of this kind. It doesn't have access to the grand jury. It can't do search warrants. It can't give people immunity to force them to testify if they lawyer up, which our friend uh, John Turley noted that there's been reporting about, uh, you know, some of the uh, at least some of the clerks who were involved who got lawyers. And although they gave the court affidavits that denied that they are the ones who did the leak, they they didn't want to tell the investigators much else. And because the way this was investigated, they didn't have to. So the Justice Department didn't want to get involved in this because ideologically they supported uh, – they were opposed to – the prospect of, of, of Dobbs overturning Roe, and I continue to believe that the Biden administration and the left generally was hoping that the leak would work. So the last thing they were going to do is uh, investigate it. But if they weren't going to investigate it, it wasn't going to be solved. Finally, a criminal case that has gotten so much national attention, sort of renewed attention in the last day or two, is this Alec Baldwin movie set accidental shooting death of someone on that production of that movie, Rust, and Alec Baldwin being an A-list celebrity, 
with you know political controversy attached to him and all that, of course, it's going to get attention. Uh, it took a very, very long time, at least in my mind, to get charges here. You know, 15 months later, finally some charges. Uh, Baldwin's camp is saying they're going to fight him. It's a travesty of justice that the charges are happening at all. I have some sympathy to him in the case, but I also don't really believe this story that he's telling publicly that he didn't pull the trigger. That makes me question some other things. You were for a long time, Andy, a prosecutor. From that perspective, why would it take so long to get to a charging decision, more than a year? And obviously it's a little bit of a complicated case, but not more so than any other case, I would imagine, or that much more so. And then if you were a prosecutor in this, based on the facts that you're aware of, do you think that this was the right call to move forward with these charges? Guy, I think it was the wrong call. I I, I did a opinion column for uh, Fox News yesterday to that effect. Uh, it took a long time because they don't have strong evidence. When you have strong evidence, you can, you know, quickly charge the case and launch. Um, it took a long time because their evidence is very sketchy and there's a lot of hand wringing about it. But I guess, I guess I should put my cards on the table. Philosophically, I don't believe the criminal law is for tragic accidents. You know, the criminal law is something that we should use and reserve only for intentional wrongs. And to expand it a little bit from that, uh, recklessness in the nature of depraved indifference, like the person who, uh, you know, indiscriminately shoots a gun into a crowd, knowing that that could kill somebody, but not really caring. So, so uh, hang so, on. So let me let me jump in then, because I don't necessarily yep. disagree with that. But on the recklessness point, there's been a lot of discussion around the culture of recklessness on that set in that production. Corners being cut, people quitting because of the climate and they just didn't feel comfortable. I guess there are people who have specific job and, and you know duties in their description where they are supposed to make sure that these guns don't have live ammo in them. I don't know why there would be any live ammo anywhere near a movie set like this to begin with, but there was, and it was in the gun, and people were supposed to check and I guess didn't or failed to do it. I mean, wouldn't that rise to the level of some degree of recklessness considering that someone is dead where the criminal law would have something to say about it? I, I don't think – I think it's an inflation of the idea of recklessness. I think it's classic negligence, which is why we have a civil law system. But the criminal law is for people who commit willful wrongs, and I just don't – you know, I understand that the way the society now works, uh, you know, unless somebody can be, in, you know, arrested, indicted, and convicted in a criminal trial, we feel like we don't have vindication. But the criminal law is not designed to deal with tragic accidents. The criminal mm. law is supposed to deal with people who willfully violate the law, and I would point out here that – you know, Alec Baldwin, uh, who is, uh, you know, he, he's, I'm not a, I'm, I think he's a wonderful actor, but, you know, I probably wouldn't disagree with, the, wouldn't agree with him on what time of day it is. But mm -hmm. that's beside the point. I tend to be, you know, pretty clinical on this, uh, on, you know, legal analysis stuff. He settled the civil case in October. Mm -hmm. I don't see how it helps anything to, to, prosecute and potentially imprison somebody who made a mistake you know if they what we what we use that sanction for and by the way we're in a culture where people think that we're over punishing people who actually willfully violate the law 
and yet we want to go after this guy who didn't. Uh, and yeah. you know, no matter. I agree with you about the false statement on the. You know, I think he really. You know, this is why good lawyers don't let their clients talk. To, you know, talk to the media. He shouldn't have done those interviews. He shouldn't have said that. Uh, you know, he didn't pull the trigger. Yeah, because that's sort of like an insulting. You know, oh, it just like magically went off. If he had just said, "Look, two people told me it was empty. It was their job to tell me it was empty," and then. I absentmindedly pulled the trigger because it didn't matter because it was empty and they told me so. And the truth was, tragically, there's a bullet in that chamber and I'm going to live with that for the rest of my life. And I can't believe that this happened. I'm more open to feeling bad for him and saying, like, all right, is that really a crime? I think him then going out and lying about it maybe muddies the waters a little bit. And I generally agree with the thrust of what you're saying, Andy. I think the counterpoint that people will hear is like, okay. Here's a situation where a gun was pointed at another human being, the trigger was pulled, a bullet was fired, and that person died, and this was not a case of self-defense. Yes, it was accidental, but really there's no criminal element to that. I guess that's sort of what this is going to hinge on and whether the jury ultimately sides with the overall philosophy that you're espousing or whether or not the prosecutor can convince them otherwise and – If they don't settle this, it'll be a highly watched trial for sure. It is interesting just because of all the elements and sort of the atmospherics of it and the context being a movie set with this famous person. Um, I guess we'll see. Andy McCarthy, we've got to leave it there for now. Fox News contributor, former assistant, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Andy, always appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Guy. Have a good weekend. We'll step aside. We'll come right back. An update on a story that we've shared with you this week. You're going to want to hear this next. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson Show. We told you earlier in the week about this story out of Florida. The DeSantis administration and the Department of Education in that state has informed the College Board that they are rejecting this proposed new AP African-American Studies curriculum that has been developed in secret. No one has really seen the curriculum, part of the problem, while they're trying to get it approved for widespread use. There is a 60 high school pilot program underway this academic year. We don't know where those schools are. They won't reveal that information either. And we walked through some of the objections to it. Stanley Kurtz at National Review had seen the curriculum and wrote extensively about it. So we brought you that update with some details and the reasoning from the DeSantis administration, from the Department of Education specifically, just a few days ago. Well, there are a few updates. Since I published a piece about this at townhall.com and talked about it here on the show, I got a copy of the letter that the Department of Education in Florida sent to the College Board, which was very short and relatively terse, but also underscoring that if – The College Board comes back addressing some of the concerns about elements of this curriculum. They would revisit their decision as well. It's not like a permanent no. This is a no for now as written. It's kind of the exact same thing that happened with the textbook controversy down in Florida where they rejected some of the textbooks for use in the state because of certain woke things that they objected to. In fact, there were even like math examples in math equations or math problems that were ideologically loaded, the DeSantis people came back to these textbook publishers and said, these things won't fly, alter it, and 
will talk, and the alterations were made, the politics were pulled out of it, and more than a dozen of the textbooks were then approved. That was the last update that I had seen. Well, in this case, they're saying same thing. We have concerns, I would guess, mostly about one component. It's like a four-unit curriculum. I think part four is what people are most concerned about. And not only did I get that letter, I also obtained a copy of the curriculum, this curriculum that is being rolled out behind closed doors with very little public debate. Almost no one has seen it. Well, I now have. And I wrote about it today at townhall.com. You can go read it for yourself. I got some screenshots from part of the curriculum. I will say my assessment, having read through it, is that three-quarters of it is completely appropriate, above board. I would say useful, interesting, thought-provoking, and worthy of serious scholarship. Right? It's the type of course that I would be intellectually curious to take. I think it is good for high-achieving high school students at the AP level to be learning that kind of thing. I would like to know more myself. It is Unit 4 where problems start to arise. And if you go to my piece at townhall.com, you can just click on my tweet. You can follow me at Guy P. Benson on Twitter as well and just scroll through some of the screen grabs where you have concepts in this final part of the lesson set, right, the materials, talking about intersectionality and activism, black queer studies, post-racial racism, prison abolition, reparations movement, and more. How would those things be presented to teenagers? It is not out of line to be concerned about that. And I would imagine that is what raised the flags in Florida, and so the rejection came in for now. They gave me from the administration this statement. The Florida Department of Education has rejected College Board's AP African American Studies course because it lacks educational value and historical accuracy. As submitted, the course is a vehicle for a political agenda that leaves large, ambiguous gaps that can be filled with additional ideological material, which we will not allow. As Governor DeSantis has stated, our classrooms will be a place for education, not indoctrination, as the Department of Education has previously stated. And then they go through and say, actually, it is the law, just as a reminder in Florida, to teach black history in Florida, including dark, ugly parts of our history. That's not being censored, which is what some critics are saying. It's this particular curriculum and this part of it. Update for you on the issue. We're on it here. And you can read more, as I said, at townhall.com under my byline today. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is next. Cat Timp is here. Fridays with Cat. That's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy Friday, happy hour. It's the Guy Benson Show back in D.C. today. Thank you for tuning in. Almost the weekend. An hour left together here. Always appreciate you listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand. Bonus Benson on the weekends. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. 
This hour is sponsored by our good friends over at the Finnish Long Drink, which we recommend. I'm a fan. If you haven't tried it, you should. Alcoholics, so 21 plus only. Always drink responsibly. TheLongDrink.com. You can see where it's sold near you. As they expand across the map by popular demand, you can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Oh, it's time for Fridays with Cat with our friend Cat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld Exclamation Point, also co-host of the Tyrus and Tim podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Kat, it is wonderful to talk to you. We were just on the program together last night on mm-hmm. FNC. Yes, indeed, we were. Uh, so it was, I, you sound so excited about that. Oh, it was great. It was a good show. It was a great show. I just got, I actually, like, I never look at Twitter because it makes me upset, but I got the <laughs> best, most hilarious hate tweet that I just saw just before you came on the radio from a woman named Joanne. Uh, What did Joanne have to say? Joanne, listen, this is a lady who gets it, okay? She said, it's very long. She said, your behavior tonight on Gutfeld was so inappropriate. Just because the audience didn't clap for you, calling them commies was beyond rude. (laughs) (laughs) It gets better. You do know that Greg is your boss. Screaming at him like you did should have you being... She also said calling them them commies. There's some errors here. Screaming at him like you did should have you being written up for insubordination. No class. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. I want to like get it. And like a little, you know, a piece of cardstock and like give it to Greg or something. It's so mm-hmm. funny. Like, you're right. I'm actually on my way to the principal's office. <laughs> yes, because you yelled at Greg. Written up. You guys actually, you yelled back and forth at each other for quite a while. Right. He actually about, started it. He did. It was something about Fox and Friends, right? Yeah. I said I was, uh, I, I was like tired because I was up to five. He's like, you don't have to do Fox Friends. I was like, I love doing Fox Friends. They were nice to me. You know, they said, good morning, Kat. You know, good to see you. You never say that. And we were yelling mm-hmm. at each other. Um, she was the only one who, I mean, it, it, it was performative, obviously. There was someone else oh, that was clearly. like, I was shocked, and I could tell Greg is too. And it's like, well, you know him better than I do. Yeah. You know, you're going to be really shocked when you figure out that my husband and I are going to his lake house tomorrow <laughs> where <laughs> well, our like, dogs who are biologically related can play together. <laughs> it was a whole shtick that right. escalated for performance purposes. Of and then I performatively jumped in. You had the best Like, line. I was, like, a child. Yes. Very concerned about mom and dad fighting. Yes. Because that's how it felt. And people, I guess, take that very seriously. And and your commies line, by the way, was you were criticizing the CDC and just government generally and making a point about how you can't really fix bureaucracy and there was no applause and you just sarcastically referred to the audience as commies. Right. They weren't upset. That, no, they thought that was funny. To be right, to be clear, the feedback on the whole thing was overwhelmingly positive. Oh, that's which, correct. Which is why it makes it all the more hilarious to get an entire paragraph from someone named Joanne somewhere. She's all fired up that I am not well, in trouble. Like, right. like for your how, insubordination. How in, insubordination was such a funny word, and being written <laughs> up was so funny. Like, yes. what, what? What? Is we don't have a principal's office here, Joanne. Yeah, there's a pink slip that yeah. we have where we uh, put that in your permanent record. Right. And I've actually written you up for four demerits for right. that very inappropriate performance last night. Here's the other thing, sweet Joanne, if you're listening. Joanne. Do you ever watch the show? Because, like, what exactly is your definition of inappropriate? Right. Having watched Gutfeld. Right. Yeah, I, but it's... I, I just I watch TV. 
I watch a fair amount of TV. I have it on in the background. I watch it. I've never pulled out my phone and been like, I got to tell this person how I feel about how much I hate this person <laughs> and how I believe they're they're behaving so inappropriately in their workplace that I know far more about than they do. It's unbelievable. Well, I think the most remarkable thing about last night's program was what we discovered in the green room before the show. Yes. When I was meeting another guest, first-time guest on the program. Yes. And we were just crossing paths in and out of the makeup room, shook hands, and then someone made the comment, and we both looked down, and we were wearing literally the exact same Brooks Brothers jacket. I've been waiting to wear this jacket. I've only worn it once ever before. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to save this one for Gutfeld because it looks good, and it's a little bit trendy. It's got, like, some cool colors in it. And then I show up. And this guy's wearing it, but also with a black turtleneck underneath, which is like kind of a great look. It was a great look. I kind of lost the the face off, which made me even more upset about it. It's so funny because it was also his first time on Gutfeld. So (sighs) the fact that it was the exact same jacket was so funny. Well, he apparently didn't really have many feelings about his jacket. His wife made him wear it. Right, who is our booker and works for us, Joan. So so then she she was like, wear this jacket. It'll look good. He's like, okay, honey. And then we're both wearing the same jacket. So we took a photo together and texted it to her. And then she came like running down to the green room to see it for herself. Yeah. And then also yesterday we were looking for intros for him. And I wrote the one that Greg picked. And then Tom put in the email, like, don't get mad at me, Joan. Cat wrote that. I'm like, no, don't. <laughs> don't. What was the intro? Uh, um, he Like something along the lines of, you know, he's not a cop anymore, but I still hope, I hope he'll still stop and frisk me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, don't call me. Yep. Now you made it weird. One of the topics that we discussed yesterday on Gutfeld last night was this whole George Santos thing. Oh, yeah. And we all had our different takes. Have you seen the new development today on this? Oh, I haven't. Okay. So the photo, and we had this yesterday. We put it up uh, on the screen. There's this photo that emerged of Santos in drag, Mm -hmm. I guess, in Brazil years ago, which is like, fine. Who cares? Right, of course. Like, he's a gay guy, although I guess he's not good at it, though. No contour. That's right. So I guess (laughs) one of the other drag queens was like dissing him for being a bad drag queen. Yes. So he then. Being George Santos puts out this indignant tweet saying that is categorically false. Oh, loved it. That he ever performed in drag. And then the New York Post dropped a story of not only more photos of him in drag, but him on video boasting about his drag performances. Amazing. And so, like, literally within the same day, he issued a categorical denial of a right. totally false story, having seen the photo of himself already published. Yeah. And they're like, all right, George, categorical, you say? How about a here's a video, a hot piping video of you in drag boasting about your drag. Like, why? I, I think he's there's something wrong with him, obviously. But, like, why would you lie about something that you know has already been disproven? Knowing somewhere in the back of your brain that you've done a fair amount of drag and you've talked about it publicly on camera. Right. I, yeah, I, I commented on his tweet. I replied to his tweet with one word, bruh. <laughs> and I thought that was yeah. all that really neat. I mean, I, I meant what I said yesterday. He would make an excellent friend. You could share all your secrets with him. And he would, if he, what's he going to do, tell? No one's going to believe him. Right. You're like, 
Uh, so Kat, I'm really good friends with Kat Timpf. Yeah. People are like, oh, yeah, that's BS. Right. And she told me, and then, like, something actually true. They're like, all right, well, yeah, right. that definitely never happened. Exactly. I, I, Although I, him, hang on, though, him being him, would your concern be that he would actually tell lies about you that might actually bother you? I'm sure like, that he would tell lies about me. Like, Kat's but... actually secretly totally straight-edge sober. Like, he you might, don't know that about well, in her. in January really I am, but... He oh, might, do we we have an update on that, by the way? But please finish your thought. Uh, yeah, he might. But I, nobody's going to believe a word out of his mouth. I mean, and that's his fault. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've I've had friends who who are no longer friends, and a major reason one in particular was a pathological lying issue, and mm. even that person steered clear of the nine eleven Holocaust stuff. <laughs> like <laughs> that is a whole different level. Do you remember the, maybe not, the SNL character Penelope that Kristen Wiig would play? Yes. Like the one-upper, the pathological yes. one-upper. That's George Santos. He's like, well, I actually invented drag. I invented yeah. Brazil. I own Brazil. Um, that's him. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, we have not heard the last of it, and it's just kind of this rolling embarrassment. And what I kind of like about it is it's very embarrassing for him, and any degree of, like, Sadness I felt for him is gone just because he's obliterated sympathy with the sheer volume of lies and the type of lies and some of this other stuff, the allegations about, you know, the homeless veteran bilking money out of this guy and his friends for the surgery for his dog who was dying and then just taking the money and the dog died. Like the reservoir of potential sympathy long ago ran dry. What I do like about it is it's embarrassing for the Republicans because – He's one of them, and they can't get rid of him because their majority is so small. So they're sort of stuck with this stupid problem. It's also embarrassing for the Democrats who ran twice against this man and never bothered to, like, do a single thing when it comes to opposing him and finding stuff, basic stuff out about him. So it's he's sort of like this monument to incompetence that's just sitting there in Congress, and, I like, everyone sort of deserves it in a way. Yeah, I, I really just – I have a lot of questions, you know? Like, who are his – like, who is his best friend? Like, who mm. – what is he doing this weekend? You know, like, what is a typical Friday night look for Santos? I think he and Sean Mendez are probably like, besties. Wait, what is he doing? You're like, uh, are you and Lizzo going to brunch? Like, obviously, whatever he says he's doing yes. is not what he's really yes. doing. But no, he's what very is close he with Lizzo. Actually... He, he found Lizzo. He discovered he Lizzo. He discovered Lizzo. <laughs> yeah. It's really messed up the way she just left him in the dust after everything he did for her. I know. That's rude of her. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I told you there was an update yes. on Dry January. Two weeks ago, we had this conversation Let's take a break. We'll come right back, and I will reveal the update about Christine, who's not even here to defend herself. Next, Fridays with Cat, Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Happy hour, Guy Benson Show. Cat Timp is with us. She's in New York. I'm in D.C. Glad to have you wherever you are. GuyBensonShow.com. All right, Cat. So last time we did a Fridays with Cat, it was two weeks ago. You were a few days into your dry January, and you had some very, I would say, no sarcasm, profound things to say about addiction vis-a-vis your vape addiction that you've kicked, and then your dry January approach and how that's been going. I assume that you are still sticking with it? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. On the train. Great. So 
we were all in New York together for that conversation, and producer Christine was across the glass from us in the production booth, and she was also attempting Dry January for the umpteenth consecutive year. Last year, she made it 11 days Mm -hmm. and then failed and then called that a success. Success, correct. Uh, And I said, well, no, that's like by every measure of failure. But (laughs) it seemed, it seemed in the moment, just looking at the body language and the degree to which Christine was like really dialed in on what you were saying and you were sort of like feeling it and making all these points, I felt like you were breaking through to Christine on that Friday. And that you were just sort of fortifying her resolve to go and do this. She's like, yes, I can do this, and Kat is speaking to me. I would like you to know, and Christine is off today on one of her many vacations that she takes, but uh, she, the next day, drank (laughs) multiple cocktails. She had two Cosmos at her mother's birthday party. I knew it. And then came back being like, oh, no, like I'm going to restart now. I'm like, no, it's over. Like, she got mad. She got mad at her husband because she convinced her husband to also break dry January with her. Mm. She had a few cocktails that Saturday. Then she went and did some errands, came back on Sunday, and Bobby was, like, on the couch watching football, drinking a beer. She was mad that he was drinking beer. Mm. I'm like, no. No, he – you have forced him, basically, to break the plan, and now dry January is over. You can't hold it against him that he's having a damper January than you have already chosen to have. That's my position, and I would like you, if you would so choose, to shame Christine uh, because she will listen to the podcast. Yeah, okay, so you absolutely can, you know, restart. It's better to still, you know, to to not let the hiccup turn it into a January bender. Um, But the whole purpose of doing dry January isn't to just, like, not drink when you would normally not drink. (laughs) Anyway, it's so that you can realize you can get through drink, not drinking in times when you would normally drink. Like she specifically mentioned her mother's birthday because Mm -hmm. then it gets easier. I I had a friend text Cam and I yesterday, actually, when is dry January over? First of all, February. (laughs) Yeah, calendar. Is it calendar? (laughs) It's over. Yeah, it's over (laughs) in February. Second of all, I'm actually like, I'm not in a hurry. I'm not like, oh, I can't wait for the clock to strike February so I can drink. It gets easier the less that you do it. Uh, to not drink. Um, well, the thing that – so I bumped into Kennedy, our mutual dear yes. friend, in the hallway yesterday at Fox. She's doing Dry January. Yeah. And I said, how's that going? And she's like, it's fine. It's just dull. Yeah. That, and I'm like, okay, that's fair. But she's like, I'm doing it. It's, it'll be fine. That was, her, that was her response. But, you know, some people have a little ounce of willpower. And then, you know, other people are Christine. Right? And that's, you know – to each his or her own. I just wanted to get that in there. By the way, also for the audience, in case you were curious, Christine bought a $35 umbrella yesterday from basically a scam artist, and it broke within two minutes. <laughs> and she was she was unable to return it. And also the Fox News umbrella that she claimed was stolen from her, her husband found. So it was not stolen, just like her purse was never stolen when she was screaming that it was stolen in Washington, D.C. So that's just like a little Christine update. Mm. She's not here to give it herself. But I, I just the audience craves these little details. Uh, last question for you, Kat. There was a story on the rundown yesterday for Gutfeld that we were going to do, and then we didn't because it got replaced at the last minute. It's this like British expert, quote unquote, and we mentioned it here on the show yesterday, who is now lecturing people that if you bring in like baked goods, cake, cookies, that sort of thing into the office, that is almost the same thing. She's saying it is tantamount to secondhand smoke, exposing people to secondhand smoke. It's so bad because of the obesity crisis and, 
you know, people can't keep their hands off of cake and you're making them fat and you're going to kill them. And I just wonder, there were probably some pearls of wisdom and humor that you were prepared to unleash to the world on Gutfeld last night before the topic changed. And I wanted to make sure that we got them here. Well, I would just like to point out that cake is very accessible. Uh, you know, you, you can find it, it more so than, than, you know, if you want cake, you can get some cake. Okay. I obviously sugar is not good for you. I was definitely eating Twizzlers in the bathtub yesterday. Cause like I am doing dry January and you, you know, you need a little something fun, little you compensate somewhere. Yeah. Right? Um, but you know, I, I, what I don't like in the office, I don't like the cake shaming. I don't like if it's somebody's birthday and there's a cake and you don't want a piece the, that you're a jerk because you don't want a piece. Oh, I agree. Yeah, like if it's there, you can have. That's some. a nice gesture. Go and have some. If you don't want it, no one should pressure you into have doing it. Have a cookie. It. Have a cookie. Have a cookie. I don't want a cookie, Brenda. No. You know, at first it's no thank you. We should, clip, you, that. We and should then- clip that from cookie, by the way. <laughs> uh, and no, but you're you're absolutely right. And my thing is with cake, the solution to cake and it being bad for you is to say no, thank you. Right. The solution on secondhand smoke you cannot can. be right. Hold your breath. Right, exactly. You have no for choice. For an hour. Yeah. So it is a failed analogy. Yes. You and I agree on these points. Therefore, it is a fact. Cat Timpf, always good to talk to you. We will talk to you again soon and hopefully see you in February, post-try January. Absolutely. Uh, and, and much merriment will occur. Let's go. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Thank you for listening. Earlier in the program today, back in our first hour, we welcomed back Congressman Byron Donalds, Republican of Florida. Really interesting chat with him today. Here's a little part of it. Listen, let's talk just briefly about that exchange. I wanted to play the soundbite. We've been meaning to get to it for a couple days here, but... She went from just talking over you constantly, saying that the insolvency date, which is not it's not you coming up with that out of nowhere, just grabbing a date out of thin air and saying it. That's the government's own numbers. She just said, not true, not true, not true, not true, not true. And then she tried to pin you down on this terrible potential solution that you were just running the math for her on it. And I guess she felt like she was able to score a little, like, political attack on you. It seems like at no point did she actually try to engage on any of the substance or facts that you were bringing to that conversation. No, she didn't want to deal with that. I think Joy was trying to paint the picture of to – be, to, to be frank, she tried to paint the picture of a black Republican who's just going to say whatever Republicans are, are typically saying when they go on MSNBC – what she actually got was somebody who knew what they were talking about. And this isn't about white or black or Republican or Democrat. It's about the facts of what's going on in the United States. So with Social Security, for your listeners, uh, the Congressional Budget Office and the Office of Management and Budget both fully expect Social Security to be insolvent by 2035. Some reports are actually thinking insolvency is going to come by 2033. But here's the kicker. Here's why this matters. In federal law, if Social Security – not even if. When Social Security goes insolvent, there is going to be an automatic, uh, an automatic reduction in benefits to the tune of 21 to 23 percent automatically when the programs go insolvent. What does that mean? That means for the retirees who, would, who get Social Security payments – uh, their benefits will be cut 20 percent. 
the second the program's going solvent. So why would we want to sit and just sit around and, and play with our thumbs when we can get ahead of it and actually fix Social Security and maintain Social Security so that retirees get the benefits they were promised and that the long-term debt obligations of the United States are actually decreased by actually doing necessary reforms? That's my yeah, and, view. That's what we should be doing. Yeah, and look, there are different ways to come at it, tweaking the retirement age. There, there's a number of different policies that are potentially out there. I think that in many cases, neither party is really that serious about dealing with the long-term liability issues that we have on these huge entitlement programs. The Democrats are dead set on any changes ever, and they demagogue it, and they will demagogue it to death until the programs actually are on the doorstep of insolvency, and then what? I mean, that's sort of what pre-planning requires, and I think what we just played for the audience is an encapsulation of how pointless and dysfunctional the debate can get because you were citing a factual piece of information from CBO that she said was just a lie. She wanted people to think you were lying, and then then she just pivoted quickly to attacking one of the potential solutions and doing so ignorantly. It's just like a very frustrating thing. It's very hard to solve complicated problems when you have a lot of people dedicated to actively lying about the problem while accusing the people telling the truth of lying. And that's what we just heard there. Congressman, I also want to ask you, because you've been sort of at the center of a lot of attention recently, of course, during the speaker battle, 15 rounds. Your name was introduced in multiple rounds. You got a number of votes uh, for Speaker of the House, of course. Over the process that played out that we all watched, there was a member of the House – from the other party, Corey Bush, a member of the squad, who tweeted basically that you don't really count um, as as a black person or as a black candidate for speaker for her own ideological, I think, really twisted, really backwards identity politics, like rubric, whatever they use. Uh, I know you had a bit of a back and forth with her. I'm sure you've gotten that for a lot of your life and your career because you're not supposed to be a conservative according to these people, which I think is bigotry, when you saw that coming in from Congresswoman Bush and people defending her, how does that affect you personally, and how do you push back against that in a way that you feel like you can keep your dignity intact while also calling out something really gross that they're saying? Well, personally, I, I really don't care. Um, you know, it's actually not something that you deal, you've, I've dealt with a lot. A long time, I should say. But, you know, the second I got into politics and started, like, you know, winning elections and being successful, that's when that stuff starts to come because, you know, black conservatives were narrative busters. You know, what I found is that, you know, frankly, it's white liberals and black and black progressives. They're the ones that hate black conservatives more than anybody else because we directly cut across the narrative that they try to portray. And so, you know, being once I got into the state legislature and now being a member of Congress, those hits only come. But I knew that was going to happen. So that's why it doesn't really bother me uh, per se, uh, because most of these people who will say this stuff, you know, in, in interviews when I'm not on set, you can even tell Joy Reid she tempered her her enthusiasm when I'm sitting right there or people who will tweet it. They won't say that stuff directly to my face. Like, they're, mm-hmm. like and nobody's going to walk up to me on the House floor and say that directly in my face. So that's why I don't really care about the attacks. I think 
the thing that bothers me more is the impact it has on young black people or young, you know, to quote the left, people of color who are starting to think about pu- public policy and politics and realize they're actually more conservative. My full interview with Congressman Byron Donalds, a Florida Republican. It's available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Part of our free podcast every day, start to finish on demand for free when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. I will tell you how I spent my evening last night. It's how I've spent several evenings recently when I've been up in New York. And I will turn theater critic when we come back right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Friday edition. GuyBensonShow.com. Free podcast every day. If you're listening on the broadcast, Thriller by Michael Jackson playing us in here. And last night in New York, I went to go see the new musical MJ on Broadway. So this really started to happen, gosh, a couple months ago. I go to New York all the time for work, for various TV shows. And depending on my schedule, sometimes I'm very packed at night. Sometimes I really don't have that much to do after a certain time of the evening. And I found myself spending probably too much time just sitting in my hotel room watching TV. I said, okay, I'm in New York. There are things to do. I'm watching, like, Family Feud reruns here, which is fabulous, right? I'm tr- I love the feud. Love the feud. But do I need to be doing that in this city when I am steps away from the entire theater district? And I can go, and it's expensive, but I feel like I can plunk down some money, go see some shows, and witness some of the most talented people, performers in the world, like right here. So I sort of resolved to try to do more of that, even if it meant just going by myself to see shows, which I've done a number of times. So in the last few months, I have seen Come From Away, which I think either has closed or is closing. It ran for years, very successful. I had heard great things about it from enough people that finally I said, all right, before it closes, I want to go see it. And it was really good. Story that's actually 9-11 based. That was, I think, part of the reason why I wasn't, like, busting down the doors to go see it, a 9-11 related musical. But it's based on the true story of this little tiny town, little tiny airport in, like, Nova Scotia, I think, Canada, where all the inbound international flights coming from Europe had to land on 9-11 because U.S. airspace was closed. Couldn't come here. So they were rerouted to this little tiny town. It's a true story, and they made a musical based on it, and it's actually very touching and charming and at times even funny. So I enjoyed that. I saw the reboot of 1776, the revival of that, which I think first came out on Broadway in the 60s, I want to say, or 70s. Then it was revived in the 90s. I saw it then. I love the movie with Mr. Feeney from Boy Meets World as John Adams. And then I had just bought tickets. I saw it was back on Broadway, so I went and bought tickets, only discovering the day of the show that the twist of the revival was it was an all-female and non-binary cast. 
which is kind of just doing the Hamilton thing. Like, oh, surprise, the Founding Fathers are all these women now this time or whatever. So I was like, all right, here we go. But it's a very good show. The music is good. They treated it respectfully. Some really talented people in that show. It was not my favorite production I've ever seen of it. But it was worth it. I enjoyed the show. Some great musical numbers. And there's actually a tip of the cap to 1776 in Hamilton. Sort of the most famous Broadway musical about the founding of America. Hat tip to the OG founding musical. Then recently I went to go see Moulin Rouge, which was a spectacle. I didn't really know what to expect. I had never seen the movie, which came out maybe early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, Lady Marmalade, whatever. So I went to go see it. It was fun. The plot really didn't matter. It was just uh, here's a vehicle to have dozens and dozens of very famous pop songs performed by these talented people as they dance and sing and all that with very cool staging. So it was fun. And then last night I went to go see MJ. I was done with the Gutfeld taping. I couldn't make any shows with a curtain at 7 o'clock, so that limited my options to 8 p.m. curtains. This was one of them. I had heard that it was good. Actually, a friend of mine on Broadway, I DM'd, said, hey, how is this? Because I know he'd seen it. He said, it's amazing. I said, all right. So went, got my ticket. And I'll just say this. I'm not a huge Michael Jackson fan. I'm not not a fan of his music. All right, let's set aside all the personal stuff and the allegations and the, I think, very real likelihood that he molested children. I mean, it's hard to sort of put that out of your head. In fact... That was at the very back of my mind the whole show. But you can't just totally separate the art from the artist when some of the elements of the artist's past crosses big, big, big lines, right? At least in my mind. But the way that they did the show was it was set in 1992 with Michael Jackson getting ready for this big stadium tour that he's going to embark on. And they weave in basically his whole life from the early days of the Jackson 5 and I Want You Back and ABC all the way up through the songs that he is preparing, you know, for this tour from his newest album, 92. So it's before any of the molestation allegations blew up and sort of the whole way that his life sort of spun out of control from that point forward. And then, of course, his untimely death. That just, none of that came into the picture because it was 1992 and previous. That was the time frame for the show. And I actually saw, like, in the playbill, we had a lot of understudies. It was not the A-team, so to speak, in all the major roles, including Michael, although they have three different Michael Jacksons at three different ages. There's a little kid, there's like the young man, and then the early 90s main Michael Jackson who appears kind of throughout the whole show. But the main MJ was the understudy, and he was so good. It's like, if this guy's the understudy, like, you can only imagine like the every night guy, how talented he is. But I would not have known. If not for the little insert into the playbill, I would have assumed this is just the A-team. It was that good. And 
place was packed. There's great buzz about it. And it is impossible not to enjoy some of Michael Jackson's music. And he had so many hits. And it spans decades of, like, you know, the Jackson 5, that era, and, like, Soul Train, and then some of the stuff that the Jacksons did in, like, the early 80s, and then the solo career. And if there is a major Michael Jackson song in existence, it's in the show. And you just don't know when it's coming, necessarily. And as I mentioned, we bumped in here to this segment with Thriller. They gave us a little tease of Thriller before intermission, and then that was it. I was like, that cannot possibly be the full treatment that we're going to get of that song. Sure enough, they did a big production of it later. The dancing is unbelievable. The performances, the singing is great. It is hard not to sort of like dance a little tiny bit in your seat, tap your foot, even as the whitest person on planet Earth. I could not resist. Some of the actors and actresses were especially like the mother character. Her voice just blew me away. There was a duet between her and Michael. I'll be there. Oh, amazing. And then just some high-octane performances throughout the whole show. Big, extraordinary extravaganzas with the dancing and singing and lights and staging. It was just a festival and really well done. Some breathtaking appearances for like Michael Jackson just shows up out of nowhere. And the way that they finish the show and they culminate the whole thing, it was just great. It was so fun. I actually was sort of seated close to the stage but way off to one side, so I had a couple blind spots on the stage. I kind of want to go back and get a seat in the center so I can see the whole thing again. Maybe with the main actor who normally plays Michael at some point. And after the show kind of ends, but there's still a few more numbers with all the lights up, the huge standing ovation, and they're moving toward the curtain call where the cheers get louder and louder than the biggest applause for the main character. I was just looking around. I was looking behind me, and the theater was packed to the gills with just smiling faces across all races and ages, people happy, clapping in unison along to the beat, and it was just really fun and extremely well done. If you're a Michael Jackson fan, if you love his music, this is like a must-see. If you're kind of like me, you like some of his songs, you're a little bit ambivalent, you have some issues with his history and some of the things he was accused of, I think, credibly, I still encourage you to see it. And if you're a Michael Jackson hater, I mean, I guess they exist, I kind of defy you to really hate the show, truly. So that's uh, Theater Criticism Corner with Guy Benson. Seen a lot of them recently. I've just been kind of on a kick. I've enjoyed it. For reference, my favorite of all time on the traditional side of musicals is Les Mis. On the more modern side of musicals is Hamilton. I know those are both pretty cliche. Sue me. They're both really great. A classic and a modern classic. But, man, MJ, strong wreck. And with that, I got to moonwalk out of here because we're out of time. It's the weekend. Back here Monday on The Guy Benson Show. Before then, catch me on Media Buzz Sunday morning, Fox News Channel, with Howie Kurtz. 
and then we'll be back on the radio next week. Have a fantastic weekend. It is The Guy Benson Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.